First Timothy chapter 6. We come today to the end of our journey through this book, verse by verse, and have come to consider these last two verses, taking a shorter chunk here, but doing so that we might, in some respects, review the book. Paul closes here, O Timothy, chapter 6 and verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. For some time, the Episcopal Church in the USA has wandered far and wide from the narrow path of Jesus Christ. The Episcopalian communion has set its rudder by the guiding stars of postmodern relativism, feminism, universalism, multiculturalism, evolutionism, and virtually every other ism opposed to biblical authority and the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ. But a remarkable agitation is taking shape. Churches that embrace the authority of Scripture in the Episcopalian communion are placing themselves under the authority of Bible-believing African leadership. Nigerian Archbishop Peter Akinola is one who has taken some such churches under his wing, declaring that it is the Mother Church of England that has left the communion by swerving from the faith. Recently, Akinola proposed to seat a conservative bishop over a newly formed Episcopalian denomination on U.S. soil. As you can imagine, the Episcopalian Church did not take kindly to the news of an African archbishop messing on their soil. According to a recent World Magazine article, a voice of protest was raised by the Episcopal Church's presiding bishop, Catherine Scorey. Ms. Scorey is an ordained female pastor. She supported the consecration of gay bishop Jean Robinson. In a sermon to an Episcopalian church convention, she referred to Mother Jesus. Just let that settle for a while. Said another way, she has made a career of aligning herself with the trends of the last 50 years of church history in direct opposition to 1950 years of tradition grounded in Holy Scripture. Yet in response to Archbishop Akinola's move to start a conservative denomination that believed in the authority of Scripture, she said this, Such action would violate the ancient customs of the church. It was one shining moment for history ignoring perspectivalism and brazen hypocrisy. Now, As Bible-believing Baptists, we are not particularly impressed with the ancient customs of the church. That's not one of our strong suits, or it is one of our strong suits, depending on who would look at it. And we would adamantly disagree with Bible-believing Episcopalians on matters such as baptism and church government. We would believe that they have not seen things as they should see them there, of course. But I think we must rejoice with all people 
over the whole globe and through all ages who are zealous for the ancient doctrine, for the revealed truth of God entrusted to us by the church's apostles. We may disagree, and in fact we should disagree, if we do not see eye to eye on the proper interpretation of that truth that has been delivered to us. But praise God for those who believe it has been delivered, that it is authoritative truth, and that it is to be honored today no differently than on the day it was written. In the Bible, we possess the objective, external, enduring message of God. And it is our calling as a people to invest our lives in rightly hearing God's Word and defending God's Word and in obeying His inerrant Word. This thesis repeatedly emerges from the body of the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy, Paul's apostolic representative at Ephesus. And as the Apostle signs off, he ends this letter where he began the letter. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Hearing God's word through Paul's instructions to Timothy, we learn as a church that we are called to guard the true doctrine as a sacred trust. We may take this for granted, but we dare not. We need to engage our minds and focus our attention and consider our calling to guard the true doctrine as a sacred trust, as individuals and as a body of believers in Christ. Oh, Timothy. We don't use the word oh too often. In fact, in polite speech, you probably shouldn't use that too often. People will question your sanity. But you know what he's saying. Oh, Timothy. As he brings this book to a close, he's conveying his heartfelt earnestness. You can almost feel Paul's heart surge with a love for Timothy and surge with the urgency of protecting the gospel of Christ. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit. The Greek words indicate that Paul is placing in Timothy's keeping a responsibility, an infinitely valuable trust that Timothy must protect with all diligence. What is that deposit? If you'd fill that in for a test, what would you write down at this point? What is the deposit that Paul expects Timothy to guard? He doesn't really articulate it, and I don't think at this point in the letter he needs to. Let's go back to chapter 1 as we review and remember where this book starts. Chapter 1 and verse 3. What is the deposit that Timothy is to guard? 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. After the greetings after setting everything to the grace of God in Christ and the salvation in Him in verses 1 and 2, he starts right here. I want you to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. No heterodoxy, no different doctrine that is out of line with the apostolic doctrine. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations Note that word, speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So we have the charge 
He is to charge people not to teach false doctrine. And there is a stewardship that is being entrusted to Paul and Timothy as they serve the cause of Christ. With the aim being, verse 5, the aim of our charge is the love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So there is the stewardship, there is the charge, and it is sound doctrine. Orthodoxy. The true doctrine as opposed to heterodoxy, the different doctrine that people imagine. So Paul is again simply ending the letter where he started it, with the deposit of the true doctrine. But let's note further also verse 11 of this first chapter. Chapter 1 and verse 11, where he defines there, you see at the end of verse 10, all of the godlessness that he is picturing here is contrary to sound doctrine to healthy doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been, note the word, entrusted. I have been entrusted with the glorious gospel, which is sound and healthy teaching. God has placed that in my trust, and it is this doctrine, this gospel, that you are to defend, Timothy. We're going to come right back to this chapter in a moment. Hold on to that thought. But it's clear again, the deposit is the true doctrine, the gospel. This deposit of the true truth of God's word is epitomized in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is, now let's focus here, to be guarded. We see what it is. The true message delivered by God to the apostles, passed on to the church. This message is to be guarded. Negatively, this means that Timothy must protect the true doctrine against false doctrine. He must stop false teachers from teaching in the church. Chapter 1, verse 3. And he must expose the error of their false doctrine. He needs to give some sense of why it is wrong. It's not appropriate just to say, don't follow that person, what they're teaching is wrong. We need to give some explanation as to why it is wrong. This will be part of Timothy's work in guarding the true doctrine. Positively, what does it mean? It means that Timothy must devote himself to teaching the church true doctrine. That means he will be dedicated to the study of Scripture. He will be dedicated to employing the Scriptures in the assembly, chapter 4 and verse 13. He will make sure that it is read there, that it is sounded out there. He will make sure that there is an exhortation that comes to God's people to honor this truth. He will teach them the paths of Scripture and the teachings of Scripture as the Bible is integrated together to help them to understand its overall message and its specific message in various passages. This will be his work, to guard the doctrine against the false teaching and in favor of the true teaching of God. Teaching that true doctrine must also then be coupled with honoring that word in his life. We would really miss a major emphasis in the book of 1 Timothy. In fact, I don't know if the letter really holds together if we don't see this aspect. That guarding the true doctrine is not merely a matter of articulating orthodox propositions. We say something as the truth and everybody nods their head and says, yes, that's the truth. That's not the true doctrine. The true doctrine goes further than that. It is guarding the true doctrine of life. It is living it out. The true doctrine leads us to live a certain way. Chapter 4 and verse 12. Remember Paul's instruction to Timothy here. 
Chapter 4 and verse 12, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. In verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the doctrine. Coupled together with this watching of the true doctrine is always the life that flows from that true doctrine. Watch your doctrine. Watch your life. Live out that true, transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. More on that in a bit. But let's, going back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20. To guard the deposit that is entrusted to you. I turned you there. Keep your finger there. Let's go back to chapter 1. Let me make this connection again. The doctrine that's entrusted to you. Remember verse 11, where in reference at the end of verse 10, contrary to sound doctrine, he's referring to sound doctrine, chapter 1, verse 11, that is in accordance with the glorious gospel with which I have been entrusted. You see that idea? Now look at verse 18 of the same chapter. This charge I entrust to you. Paul has received this charge. It's been entrusted to him. A deposit has been entrusted to Paul. He, in turn, entrusts that same deposit to Timothy. Now to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Keeping this string in view, from God to Paul to Timothy... 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14, writing again to Timothy, Paul says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, verse 2 of chapter 2, 2 Timothy 2 2. I'll read the first verse to get the flow. 2 Timothy 2 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see the connection from God to the apostles to Timothy to those that he will teach and on to Eden Baptist Church in 2007. The deposit is still intact. And it's to be transferred from one generation to the next. My experience in track was very inglorious. It's a great source of humility and jokes to this day. But I did enjoy it and learned a few things from it. But I think sometimes I joined track for one analogy. And that is the relay and the passing of the baton. It serves as such a capable illustration to us of what the faith is. In a relay team, you know in track that you've got to be fast, which is why my experience was fairly inglorious. But um, you have to be fast, but you also have to follow through on the passing of the baton. And that takes practice. And it's difficult. There's a certain way that you hold your arm. There's a certain way that you time the next runner coming in. But one runner's got to pass that baton, that little stick, on to the next runner who takes it there and then passes it on to the next runner and on to the next. There are a number of runners. There's only one baton. And if that baton is dropped by any one runner anywhere along the path, or if that baton is dropped in the exchange the race is most certainly lost. 
We, as believers, are the runners. And one generation passes off this truth to another generation. The baton is the faith. It remains the same, transferred from one to another until the faith is brought over the finish line. As we think about that Eden Baptist Church, the passing of that baton, the carrying of the faith into glory, I think it would do us well to stop for a while here and to park on this and to think about it because it is such a vital message that we've gained over and over through 1 Timothy and it is something to which we are called and must take careful thought. I'd like to break down three concepts here for us and the first is this, concerning this deposit. Number one, it is an objective external message. It is an objective external message. The true doctrine that we are to defend is an objective revelation from God conveyed to us through human language. Even in the dreams and visions of the Old Testament, there was a message communicated in words. God has spoken. We listen to His Word. We read His Word. But in some sense, we are the receivers of that communication, that objective Word. It says that the message does not originate with our feelings or our desires. We cannot bend it to fit what we want it to say. This written truth comes from outside of us. It stands forever fixed and unchanging. And it is always we who are adjusting to it. You notice here that Paul looks at it as intact in his day. It was to be preserved, not developed. It doesn't evolve. It was given from God and to be taken as is. The church should mature, certainly, to develop its understanding of what the Bible teaches. We will ever be developing that way. Our elementary children know more about some doctrines than the leaders of the church knew in the first generations of post-apostolic faith. There's some that have the notion, if we go back to 125, we'll find all the answers. You'd be shocked what they believed. We do have and are growing in our knowledge of what God has said. As Pastor Pratt and I are preparing to take God's Word to other countries of this world, particularly as uh, we are heading to Africa where there are untrained pastors to whom we're going to be ministering by the grace of God, I stand in awe to think of what we have in this place. I read commentaries that have taken lifetimes of people's focus and attention to write down what the Scriptures are teaching. The work that is being done in the original languages and the comparing of past generations and past writers and teachers. We are learning and developing more and more our understanding of the true doctrine. We should be. However, Having said all of that and with all that we know about God's Word, obviously it's infinite, we'll never get to the fullest depths of it, but having said all of that, we are always moving back toward the center of God's revealed Word. We're not adjusting it. 
We're not changing it. It's not morphing in our hands and evolving into something else. It's always us moving back to the center. Laboring to understand that center better. And in that process, there's debate. In that process, there's disagreement. That's going to be the way that it is, perhaps in part so that we appreciate Jesus when He settles all the scores. As He teaches us the truth. But we're always coming back to that objective truth. That external truth that has been entrusted to us. We must think that way. Secondly, about this deposit, it produces genuine virtue. Now, we've considered that just briefly already as we've looked at Timothy, but I'd like to focus on this further. True doctrine always produces godly virtue and moral beauty. Chapter 1 and verse 5, as we summarize this point again, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You notice the aim of our charge is not the perfect systematic theology book. The end of all true doctrine is to be like Jesus Christ. To live in the moral beauty of who Christ is. A pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith is the love of Christ. Chapter 1 and verse 19 He calls Timothy to hold the faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Violating their conscience, living in moral sin, there are individuals who turn away from the true doctrine. The two go together. Chapter 2 and verse 2. We're to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Again, it is not we pray for the leaders of this world so that we will have peace in which to write systematic theologies or biblical commentaries or to send out church constitutions and covenants and affirmations, creeds, and confessions. No, it is that we might live a godly life. Verse 10 of chapter 2. As he speaks to the women, that they would adorn themselves in a manner that is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. This is what is to be seen in the way that we dress and who we are and how we present ourselves, that we are godly people. Or verse 15, still speaking of the women, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Again, we see the moral virtue. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, we have qualifications for those who will lead the church, and they are character qualifications. They're matters of Personal morality, chapter 4 and verse 8. Paul reminds Timothy that while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness is the issue. 
Chapter 4, again, in verse 12, as we read earlier, he is to be an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. In verse 16, to watch his life. In chapter 6, in verse 18, the wealthy are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. When truth is genuinely believed, it purifies our speech, our actions, our attitudes, our thoughts, our goals, our dreams. It transforms everything about who we are. And it brings us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We must never give up that truth. We cannot simply be a study group. It gives propositions of orthodox doctrine and nods our heads about them. We need to be a body that is being transformed by Jesus Christ and his truth. It should control our passions and transform our souls. One third point, and I'll land on this for a bit if you'll labor with me. This doctrine, this deposit, is passed on from one generation to the next. We've seen that from Paul to Timothy to those that he will teach. But let's think on that for a moment. Now, never get the idea that what is passed on from one generation to the next is never to be developed, never to be understood in greater fullness. It's our hope and our prayer that our children will know the Word of God and the true doctrine better than we did at their age. We should have come to an understanding of it that we can pass on more to them. That's a good process. But on the other hand, the truth of God as an apostolic deposit must be passed from generation to generation. Deuteronomy 6 and Psalm 78, as we read today. Now, thinking on that, I bring some thoughts from sociologist, Christian sociologist Ken Myers, who warns us of the challenge that we face in this respect. We are bent by our culture to think of ourselves less as receivers of tradition and more as consumers of products and services. We all need to look in the mirror and know this about ourselves. I think it's very perceptive analysis of our culture, which comes not only from Christians, but also from the unbelieving world as we discern who we are in just where we sit. Now, there's no understanding in the unbelieving world of how we are to relate to God in all of this, but it is true that we are, as a culture, consumer-oriented. The purchase of products and services defines who we are. It is the driving motivation of so much of what we do. The problem with consumerism is that the orientation is all about me. It is all about now. It is all about how I experience some product, some clothing, commodity, toy, some entertainment opportunity. It's all about me getting that and consuming it and experiencing it. A consumer-oriented culture is not very interested in receiving from older generations. And naturally, consumers are also very oriented toward personal freedom. They want to be free to reach for their dreams. They're not interested in receiving truth from their parents and grandparents and teachers and pastors and the like. Because what? It provides, here's the key word, restriction. It restricts our freedoms. It demands patient relationship and understanding between generations. It calls us to think hard enough to see through our elders' weaknesses without chucking the baton of faith away. 
I would imagine you could find some illustrations that resonate with this. One just popped into my mind, a fond memory of my childhood. One summer night, completely unplanned, just spontaneously, the adults of the neighborhood got together in one of the neighbor's lawns and we had a baseball game with kids and adults. Just think of that scene for a while. And I would say that that scene is becoming quite rare, if it's even possible in most communities. First of all, neighbors don't even know each other. Play baseball with somebody you don't know. Organize something outside on the street with neighbors. I mean, it just doesn't happen. But I think perhaps even more frighteningly, our kids today are playing all their own games. They're listening to their own music. They're losing themselves in a labyrinth of internet connections most of their parents couldn't even relate to. And that's just how they want it. If Myers is right, and I think he is, we must realize that the very process of giving and receiving the truth of God's Word is a vital aspect to grasping that truth. Read Deuteronomy 6 carefully, Psalm 78 carefully that we recited together or read together today. Think of it. One generation passes the truth on to the next and in that very process, we embrace the truth. It calls us, I think, certainly to learn to listen to the dead. Not in a seance or something along those lines, but to listen to those who have gone before and are no longer with us. There is a voice that they can convey to us. There is a perspective on the truth of God that can be passed on to us. And there needs to be a sense of historical connectedness between us and those who have gone before. Some we reject. Some we take with a little bit of acceptance and some we praise God for to the core of our being for the work that they've done. But we need to learn to listen to past ages. For those of you who are older in this assembly, it is vital that you keep yourself connected to those who are younger and convey the true doctrine. I don't think that means you grab somebody by the arm at the door and start preaching theology to them necessarily. Live it. Show it. But stay in touch and pass it on. Talk about your faith and how it holds you and sustains you and how God has remained faithful over the years. We need that. Fathers, we need to stand up. If you have the sense that the church is all that is needed to pass on the truth to the next generation, you are sadly mistaken. You need to step forward and to convey the truth of God to your children. You need to live it before them. You need to pass it on to them. You need to take leadership in your home, that your home is a place where the Word of God is being learned, His truth is being held high, and you are living out that truth before them. Mothers, how crucial you are in this string. You hand the baton to the next generation. You must show them in daily living the truth of Christ flowing from who you are 
You need to honor and uphold the true doctrine and to pass it on to them from their earliest days. All of us as adults in this assembly, as we relate to the next generation, the one that is coming after us, we need to think about passing the baton. It is not right thinking for us to think of, well, people segregate out into their age groups within the assembly naturally, and they do. We do naturally gravitate that way. But we can't think of that then as something that I can't ever enter into such circles. We should. We must. We must think about it and learn to convey the truth of God to the next generation in subtle ways, in simple ways, in gracious ways but to relate to one another and to consider one another's walk with God. We need to pass the baton. And children, you need to choose to honor your parents. You need to choose to honor your teachers and leaders, those who point you to the truth of God. That's a choice that you need to make. And you need to work on relating to them. You need to know that you are in a world that is pressing you at every turn to turn them off, to not listen to them, to find your own experiences, to consume things your own way, to mark out your own freedoms, your own way, your own life. And even for those of you who are younger, there is that pressure everywhere. Don't give in to that pressure. Your parents have a job to do, but so do you, children. You need to relate to them, to hear what they have to say. They are far from perfect and they know it. But if they are members of this church, they assuredly have truth and insight that is necessary for your life. You will not do everything that they do or believe everything that they believe. But God says in His Word that you are a moral fool to dismiss them. They have something you need, something very beautiful. Receive it. Guard it and know that it is your life. Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13. So, let's take a deep breath. There is a deposit that we are to guard as a sacred trust that is passed on from one generation to the next. We learn as a church that we're called to guard this true doctrine. And we learn here secondly, and we'll move much more quickly through this, but we learn that we are to avoid false doctrine as a dangerous diversion. To avoid false doctrine is a dangerous diversion. The middle of verse 20 says, Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. This word avoid is actually not an imperative, but a participle. That is one way that we guard the truth is by avoiding false teaching. Now it's defined here as irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Timothy knows what Paul's talking about. He doesn't tell us what he's talking about. What is this babbling, these contradictions? But we get a flavor of it again in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Just review that again as we see there the different doctrine, the myths, the endless genealogies, the speculations. When you're not grounded to the truth of God, you fight with other people to figure out what the truth is because you're defining it on your own. In chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, We read of those who have made shipwreck of the faith. Paul even names Hymenaeus and Alexander who have been handed over to Satan because of their false teaching. 
Chapter 4 and verse 1. Chapter 4 and verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Again, we get a picture of some of their teaching. Verse 6 If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine that have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent myths. There again, a sense of what this teaching was all about. Chapter 6 and verse 3. Teach and urge these things. Verse 2 says, chapter 6, 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. Going back to 6.20, there it is. There is the controversy. Quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicion. Constant friction. These are the people he's talking about. And they teach the Bible. They're looking at Christian ideas, they believe. They seem to be devout religious teachers devoted to following God. The problem is they're not. Verse 11 of chapter 6, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. The central problem is that there is only one body of true doctrine, and if you wander away from it, you are in serious trouble. We must guard the sacred trust, but we must avoid those who teach false doctrine. There are many evidences for it in our world. It's everywhere present. But I think probably one of the most common characteristics is to present solutions to the Christian life which are not moored in the gospel. That is, the solution does not come from the gospel. The solution is given with Bible verses, but the solution is alien to the true doctrine. This is so difficult to figure out because it's a Christian teacher. There, that teacher is smiling on the jacket and bringing this truth that has Bible verses all around it. In fact, at the headings of the chapters, there's Bible verses and quotations from good people. And there's good people on the back of the book that endorses the book. But if you pick it apart and look at it, there are true doctrines there, there are verses there, but the solutions to the Christian life are alien. They come from another source. They're imposed upon it. They're not the true doctrine. We detect this, for instance, when the emphasis is not upon my union with Jesus Christ and His transforming power through the Spirit. And seeing this relationship with Christ as my all-sufficient source of spiritual growth, walking in the Spirit. We see this where the emphasis is not on the sufficiency of Scripture. There's a wandering off into statistics and psychological observation that's not dependent upon God's Word. And there isn't anything evil about psychological observation as such. The problem comes when that observation becomes prescriptive. 
We begin to see what's going on, and therefore, since we have been able to discern what is happening, we now have the authority to tell you how to solve it. And it's completely severed from biblical authority. Watch for it. J.I. Packer describes Christians who he refers to as restless experientialists. There is a restless experientialist in our heart somewhere, and we need to stop it. He says of these, they have fallen victim to a form of worldliness, a man-centered, anti-rational individualism which turns Christian life into a thrill-seeking ego trip. It makes sense, doesn't it? I live in a consumer-oriented world where it's all about me and my freedoms and what I get and what I experience, and I would like a theology that fits that. And so we are egocentric experientialists, thrill seekers, wanting to find a new truth, something that will interest us in the Bible again. Another detection of this false doctrine in our day is the wrong understanding of the gospel. It is this ask it of the books, ask it of the teachers that you hear. We are saved by the gospel. And now we can move on to start fixing our problems and moving forward as people. That's wrong thinking. In the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 and 2 Peter 1.3, we have the full package in our salvation in Christ. What we must do is come to understand it, to grow in it patiently, to persevere in that relationship with Jesus Such thinking that says the gospel is just to get me to heaven and then I find other ways to become who I should be is always disastrous. As verse 21 states, For by professing it some have swerved from the faith, chasing after their own theological fancies, false teachers swerve from the faith, and the end is moral ruin. Timothy is to avoid that orientation, to stay on the path of true doctrine. These false teachers have been evidence to us throughout this book. They do not develop moral virtue, but they broker in competition and dissension. They pursue their own desires and inner promptings, emphasizing what they feel is right, rather than submitting to objective truth. They practice reactionary spirituality and overweight and overanalyze certain texts of Scripture. They dig through the Bible to find verses to conform a point that is detached from whole Bible theology. Ultimately, rather than conforming their desires to the transcendent authority of God and His Word, they strive to conform reality to their own desires. Restless experientialists, bored and discontent Christians are extremely vulnerable to false teaching. Timothy is to avoid it by setting his rudder on the guiding star of God's revealed truth and the diligent pursuit of godliness. And so writes the Apostle, Grace be with you. Grace be with you. You notice there, perhaps in the footnote, that the you is plural. Grace be with you all. We should develop here in the north. Isn't that interesting? Been talking to Timothy the whole time, right? Grace be with you all. 
It reminds us that the book was intended to be read to the congregation. It reminds us that this truth is a deposit, not just to Timothy, but for Timothy to pass on to the Ephesian church, for Timothy to pass on to other leaders in the Ephesian church, and for that baton to be passed on from one generation to the next. And we will need the grace of God to do it. Only the grace of God will equip us to guard the deposit and avoid the kind of teaching that swerves from the faith. Who would have believed in the past that a Christian denomination would not only be blessing homosexual marriage, but turning to those involved in this debauchery to lead their communion? Who would believe it? When you let go of the truth, you can sink very far. By the grace of God, in a small church such as ours, and in part because the truth is guarded so carefully, it's very offensive to individuals. It's hard sometimes to be able to explain that we simply are guarding the trust and the deposit placed with us. It's not a personal thing. We don't despise you when we say that what you're believing is not true. It's, these are difficult things for people in our culture to handle. And within that kind of culture, there is a sense in which a church does tend to keep itself smaller. But even within our own communion, we need to be faithful to the true doctrine. And we cannot take it for granted. And as our young people leave our assembly, that's quite clear we can't take it for granted. They don't go away with all of it intact. We need to pass it on faithfully and pray for them and not assume anything. We have this objective external word, this sacred trust that has been given to us that leads to godliness of life and that must be passed on from one generation to the other as we avoid false teaching like the plague. So as we conclude with, let me conclude with 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. Paul writes to Timothy that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This from the apostle who said as he prepared to meet Christ, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. May we say the same thing as we pass this life. Let's bow for prayer.